0: Good morning! So, we are talking about marriage today at Waterstone, and we thought, what better way to introduce the subject of man's oldest institution than by taking a look at some of the marriages in the Old Testament. Um, as a side note, my wife actually helped me write the upcoming comedy set, and uh, today is our anniversary. So, happy anniversary, baby. I love you. So... Begin at the beginning, Adam and Eve, a marriage handcrafted by God himself. E-Harmony should be so lucky. But God hasn't stepped away for five minutes, and everything goes south. I was going to say everything went to hell, but you can't say that in church. So we have Adam explaining himself. Okay, yes, look, you're right, I, I did it, I ate from the apple, but come on, Lord, have you tried her cooking? Now, before you send me angry emails, that's one of the jokes my wife wrote. Job, we all know that Satan got permission from God to take everything good away from Job. It is worth noting that Satan did not take Job's wife. (laughs) And in chapter 2, verse 9, we see just how kind and compassionate a woman she was when she tells him in the midst of his misery, just curse God and die already. Some have called her attitude Kardashian-esque. What, is she here? Anyway, Lot and Lot's wife, who looked back as they fled the cities and was turned into a pillar of salt. The woman just could not let things go. But we need to give Lot's wife a little more slack. Recent archaeological evidence has uncovered that on the day they fled the cities, there was a 50% off sale at Zerubbabel's sandals and accessories. What woman here would not have struggled with looking back? In all honesty, that is not one of the jokes my wife wrote. But she did laugh at it. Abraham and Sarah. I imagine Sarah had a very hard time running a normal household. Look, I don't care who's sacrificing who. Nobody leaves this tent without sunscreen. You think I'm proclaiming to hear myself proclaim? Isaac and Rebecca. According to Jewish tradition, Rebecca found Isaac so extremely good looking that the moment she laid eyes on him, she fell off the camel that she was riding. I bring this up because that's exactly what happened between me and my wife. Only in reverse. And because the camel in question that I was riding was my Harley-Davidson, there were some minor abrasions involved. But it was worth it. Jacob, the reality TV show producer's dream. Jacob and Leah and Rachel and Bilha and Zilpa and Twelve Boys. It's like the Duggars crossed with Sister Wives. The Israelites spent 40 years in the desert. And I'm not saying the women had it easy. It's never easy having sand and everything. But read your Bibles. For 40 years, they didn't have to do any cooking. They didn't have to do any sewing. That joke is really sexist. The views and opinions expressed in this comedy set do not necessarily represent those of Waterstone Community Church. Samson, thrice did Samson tell Delilah... He made up stuff about how his strength could be removed. And thrice did he wake up in that exact situation. How many red flags does one person need? It's like being told once that you're interested in someone who's an Oakland Raiders fan. You just walk away. And if they start talking about deflating footballs, you run. Solomon had 700 wives. That is an anniversary present every 12 hours. And so we have Solomon. Hello, does Reels find jewelry? Of course Solomon had a flip phone. It was ancient times. Yeah, big S here. Do you guys engrave bracelets? Yeah, to my one and only. Oh, I don't know, about 300? It also could not have been easy being the wife of a prophet. For example, Ezekiel was told by God to lie on his right side for 390 days which probably made it a little difficult for Mrs. Ezekiel to entertain. Oh, hi, I'm so glad you guys could come. Come on in, Zeke, we got company. Hi. Pate's in the kitchen. Oh, yeah, don't mind him. He's been like that almost a year now. I just vacuum around him. Not entirely sure what accent this is supposed to be. And finally, we'll dip briefly into the New Testament to look at Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, Zechariah was sacrificing in the temple. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and told him that his previously barren wife, Elizabeth, would give birth. And Zechariah is recorded as saying, how can this be? My wife, myself, we're both old. And the angel of the Lord said, really? You're going to doubt me? All right, fine. Just for that, you get to be mute until the baby is born. How do you like them apples? I am, of course, paraphrasing slightly. And so it was. Zechariah could not speak until John was born. And I'm betting that Liz loved it. Nine whole months where nobody was interrupting her, nobody was complaining about the Super Bowl. Ladies, hopefully this makes up for the Israelite women joke earlier. I'm going to go before I get in more trouble. But real quick, married men, be nice to your wives today. Never forget that they're married to a man, and we all know how difficult that must be. Single guys, oh, dude, eat a meal over the sink for me today. And really, not just for me, but for all those of us who just no longer have the right. Thank you, Waterstone. You're amazing.
1: The Proverbs say that laughter is medicine for the soul. And Will, you are a pill. All right. I'd like to begin today with a story from National Geographic. It was published in February of 2006, in the month of February, and the issue was about love. It's written by a writer named Lauren Slater. My husband and I got married at eight in the morning. It was winter, freezing, the trees encased in ice and a few lone blackbirds balancing on the telephone wires. We were in our early 30s, considered ourselves hip and cynical, the types who decried the institution of marriage even as we sought its status. During our wedding brunch, we put out a big suggestion box and asked people to slip us advice about how to avoid divorce. We thought it was a funny, clear-eyed, grounded sort of thing to do, although the suggestions were mostly foolish. Screw the toothpaste cap on tight. After the guests left, the house got quiet. There were flowers everywhere, puckered red roses and fragile ferns. What can we do that's really romantic? I asked my newlywed one. Benjamin suggested we take a bath. I didn't want a bath. He suggested a lunch of chilled white wine and salmon. I was sick of salmon. What can we do that's really romantic? The wedding was over. The silence seemed suffocating, and I felt the familiar disappointment after a longed-for event has come and gone. We were married. Hip, hip, hooray. I decided to take a walk. And I'm going to excerpt here. She talks about walking around this town where they uh, had the wedding, and she comes across a tattoo parlor. She walks into the tattoo parlor and asks if she, she could get any kind of tattoo that isn't permanent. And the, the people who ran um, the tattoo parlor were from India. And she learned about henna tattoos. And so she decided to get a henna tattoo over her body to give to her husband. So I pick up the reading there. She adorned me, the tattoo lady she gave me vines and flowers she turned my body into a stake supporting whole new gardens of growth and then low around my hips she painted a delicate chain link chastity belt an hour later the paint dry I put my clothes back on went home to find my newlywed one this I knew was my gift to him the kind of present you offer only once in your lifetime I blushed I gave we began. Next paragraph. We are no longer beginning, my husband and I. This does not surprise me. Even back when, back then, wearing the decor of desire, the serpentining tattoos, I knew they would fade, their red clay color bleaching out until they were gone. On my wedding day, I didn't care. I do now. Eight years later, pale as a pillowcase, Here I sit with all the extra pounds and baggage time brings. And the questions have only grown more insistent. Does passion necessarily diminish over time? How reliable is romantic love really as a means of choosing one's mate? Can a marriage be good when eros is replaced with friendship or even economic partnership, two people bound by bank accounts? Put this on the screen for you. Let me be clear. I still love my husband. There's no man I desire more. But it's hard to sustain romance in the crumb-filled quotidian that has become our lives. The ties that bind have become frayed by money and mortgages and children. Children. Those little imps who somehow manage to tighten the knot while weakening its actual fibers. Benjamin and I have no time for chilled white wine and salmon. The the baths in our house are always including Big Bird. If (laughs) If this all sounds miserable, it isn't. My marriage is like a piece of comfortable clothing. Even the arguments have a feel of fuzziness to them. Something so familiar... It can only be called home. And yet, and she goes on to talk about all scientific research, all the relationship research and techniques about how to keep love alive. How do we make love last? How do we make marriage love go long? What's the power For marriage to survive. I'd like to talk about the power of marriage. We're in a series called Modern Family, and we've asked you to show up every week so that you can love other people in the family. Single people show up today for married people. Married people show up in a few weeks for single people. All of us, part of the family, and families show up for each other. Thanks for being here. Last week, We talked about the two purposes of marriage, why God gave it to us. The first purpose is growth. We uh, get married from God's perspective in order to become more like Jesus. Marriage is not a human institution to make us happy. It is a God designed institution to make us holy. Marriage, I would argue, is one of the most transformative spiritual disciplines. You can ever engage in. We enter marriage so that we can grow. That's how you know if it's working. You're changing. Change hurts sometimes. But we grow. The second purpose of marriage? Gospel. Gospel. We enter marriage in order to display the Gospel to the world. This is what Jesus' love looks like. Watch us. And... We get married to display the Gospel to our spouse. Our job in a marriage, get this, this is huge. Our job in a marriage is to own and express to our spouse the same opinion that Christ has of them. Our job in a marriage is to prepare our spouse to be married to God then through sacrificial service to them now. You are helping Jesus help your spouse become their future glory self. Whoa. Whoa. That's a big task. That's a huge calling. And so I'm asking today, where in the world does the power to do that in a marriage come from? I'd like to ask my first wife, the wife of my youth, to come and read the scripture for us as we hear about the power of marriage. Jan?
2: A reading from Ephesians 5, 15 to 33. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God, the Father, for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. The word of the Lord.
1: In this section in Ephesians chapter 5, and you'll also find it in Colossians chapter 3, we find what the New Testament scholars call the household code. And what Paul is doing here is writing to inform the family of God how to uh, show the Jesus lifestyle to the outside world who is watching The family of God. And he's talking about what it looks like to follow Christ in the realm of family and marriage and work. And so, before we jump into the marriage section, it's important to know that this is a bridge text, verses 18 through 21, that sets everything else up. And Paul says, Family of God, when you enter into talking about marriage, here's the first thing you know need to know the source of power in a marriage is first the spirit of God in verse 18 Paul puts it this way don't be drunk with wine that is influenced rather be filled with the spirit the Holy Spirit in a marriage is what oil is to an engine It is lubrication. It helps things to run smoothly, especially in a realm when there can be friction. The Holy Spirit is the oil and the engine of marriage. And Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Let's just pause for a moment and talk about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that filling of the Spirit is what gives you a heart that serves. A heart that in verse 21 says, can be submissive to everyone for fear of Jesus. A a serving heart is a heart that's filled with the Spirit. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, the, the, the main teaching, the first main teaching in the New Testament about the Holy Spirit, Jesus gave in John 13 through 17, on the night before the night, He died. It was His last major block of teaching with His disciples. And there's always something very important about last, about final stress and so jesus has this these last few hours with his disciples he's almost to go to the cross and he says this is what i want you to leave i want to leave you with and what's interesting in in that teaching he does the object lesson before the actual lecture the object lesson in john 13 is jesus has his disciples sit down he takes off his clothes strips to the waist kneels down and washes his disciples' feet. Understand that he washed Thomas' feet, who doubted him. And he washed Peter's feet, who would deny him. And he washed Judas' feet, who would betray him. He washed their feet. That is the lesson, the object lesson. That is the teaching that's about to come in action. So the first quality of being filled with the Spirit is a heart of serving. But what's the power source to, to have that heart of serving? That's where the rest of the text comes in. Jesus says in John chapter 14 that He, the Holy Spirit, would come upon primarily the disciples originally, but us derivatively from the disciples' teaching, would come upon them and bring to memory all the things that Jesus had taught them. Look at the verse 26. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. And His primary task is to bring to our minds... The Jesus way of serving. And then in, in chapter 16, Jesus goes on a little later in His teaching. He says, He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify Me. That is like the spotlight on Me because it is from Me that He will receive what He will make known to you. And that word make known is the Greek word wangalon, which we get our word gospel. It's the word for preaching. The Holy Spirit will preach to us. All the things that Jesus wants us to remember. Let me put something on on the screen about the primary task of the Holy Spirit. Remember this. The Holy Spirit's task, and here's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's task is to unfold the meaning of Jesus' person and work to believers in such a way that Jesus' glory, that is, His infinite importance, and beauty is brought home Clear to the mind and real to the heart. Clear to the mind, real to the heart. Being filled with the Spirit. I love the way that a British theologian, J.I. Packer, puts it. So the Spirit is the floodlight illuminating the Lord Jesus. He is the contact lens that enables us to see Him clearly. He is the matchmaker leading us to Christ for a permanent union. He is the inner calm making constant communication between Christ and us a reality of our experience. And He is the channel through which Christ pours His life and power into us for worship, sanctity, and service. But in all this, though He abides with us and indwells us and by His sovereign grace transforms us into Jesus' moral likeness, He keeps Himself out of sight. When the Holy Spirit works in us, Christ Himself and not the Spirit, is the focus of our intention. You'll note the title of the article, Shy Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit is to bring to mind the great glory, the infinite importance and beauty of Jesus such that we see Him with clear mind and full heart of Jesus. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, and By the way, if any of you have read or are reading that book, we are leaning pretty heavy on that book. It is one of the best books I have ever read on marriage, and I recommend it to you. The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller. Keller tells the story of a few years ago, counseling with a 16-year-old girl. The 16-year-old girl comes to him at one point and says, Look, I know Jesus loves me. I know He died on the cross to forgive my sins. I know that He promises me eternal life and that I'll go to live with Him in Heaven someday. But, what I really need is a date. (laughs) Now, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? What it means to be filled with the Spirit is you have your head on straight. What it means is that Christ is clear to the eye and full to the heart. It means that intellectually... This girl knows that Jesus is her savior, but what her heart is really set on is being overwhelmed by being a desired beauty. She knows that Jesus will care for her, but that doesn't really thrill her. What it means to be filled with the spirit is to have a grip on reality, And understand that when you're weighing the two options of a 16-year-old hormone to love you, or the king of the universe who says, I will be with you and stand with you for all eternity, which will you choose? Only a sane person would choose the pimples. My apologies to all 16-year-old boys in the room. I was one. I raised two. I Wish I could be some of that again. And it does get better. But only a sane person, given that choice, Jesus or a 16-year-old hormone, would choose the hormone. An insane person, I should say. The Holy Spirit brings clarity to the mind, fullness to the heart, such that we understand that Jesus is what we want. Why? Because He's reality. He's reality. He is enough and He is all. And the Holy Spirit brings that to mind. Now how does that work in marriage? Paul brings it now into marriage. And he says, in a Christian marriage, here's what's happening. Two people filled with the Spirit come together. And that means they have gone to the well and know how to answer the big questions in their life. They know where the fuel station is. Where to get the love that they need. The first love. The love of Jesus that can fill their heart and enable them to love everyone, including their spouse. They have answered the big questions in life. Why did God put me here? And where do I find my identity? They, being filled with the Spirit, the Spirit living in them, they know where to get those answers. And so it's not like two vacuum cleaners coming together to be married to produce a giant sucking sound. They know where to get the love they need. And then they come together. They, you notice when Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, the Christian life is not continual joy. There's ups and there's downs. There's times we feel far away from God. And notice it's a command. Be filled with the Spirit. You need to come back to Him again and again. You need to clear your mind. You need to to gain your heart and get it back focused on Jesus. We go through that sometimes five times a day. But we always seek to be filled with the Spirit, to get clear eyes and full heart based on Jesus and what He's done for us. If we're not doing that, marriage can be really hard. Because we end up relying on our spouse to be our Savior. That puts a lot of pressure on a marriage if you need your spouse to save you. There is few things in my observation harder to live in life, and I've seen them, than a selfish marriage. Than a marriage in which spouses are not giving to each other are not seeking the spirit to get that giving other focused heart in uh, two pages of tim keller's book the meaning of marriage i would argue the best two pages in the book i want to read you a kind of case study about what a selfish marriage looks like and how to go after it and frankly if we've been married for any length of time we've probably had days like this this is good in western culture today You decide to get married because you feel an attraction to the other person. You think he or she is wonderful. But a year or two later, or just as often, a month or two, three things usually happen. First, you begin to find out how selfish this wonderful person is. Second, you discover that the wonderful person has been going through a similar experience and he or she begins to tell you how selfish you are. And third... Though you acknowledge it in part, you conclude that your spouse's selfishness is more problematic than your own. This is especially true if you feel that you've had a hard life and you have experienced a lot of hurt. You say silently, okay, I shouldn't do that to him, but he doesn't understand me. The woundedness makes us minimize our own selfishness. And that's the point at which many married couples arrive after a relatively brief period of time. So what do you do then? There are at least two paths to take. First, you could decide that your woundedness is more fundamental than your self-centeredness and determine that unless your spouse sees the problems you have and takes care of you, it's not going to work out. Of course... Your spouse will probably not do this, especially if he or she is thinking almost the exact same thing about you. And so what follows is the development of emotional distance and perhaps a slowly negotiated kind of detente or ceasefire. There is an unspoken agreement not to talk about some things. There are some things your spouse does that you hate but you stop talking about them as long as he or she stops bothering you about certain other things. No one changes for the better for the other. There is only tit-for-tat bargaining. Couples who settle for this kind of relationship may look happily married after 40 years, but when it's time for the anniversary photo op, the kiss will be forced. The alternative to this truce marriage is to determine to see your own selfishness as the fundamental problem and to treat it more seriously than you do your spouse's. Why? Only you have complete access to your selfishness. And only you have complete responsibility for it. So, each spouse should take the Bible seriously. Should... Stop making excuses... I'm sorry, I skipped the line. Each spouse should take the Bible seriously, should make a commitment to give yourself up. Ephesians 5. You should stop making excuses for selfishness. You should begin to root it out as it's revealed to you. And you should do so regardless of what your spouse is doing. If two spouses each say... I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in the marriage. (laughs) You have the prospect for a really good marriage. Selfishness is the great cancer of any marriage. And the power, the solution to overcome it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit which creates a serving heart. And the way to be filled with the Spirit is to seek Jesus for clear mind, full heart, pursue Him, hard as you can. Can I say it this way? Those of you who are married, in order to love your spouse more, love Jesus most. Pursue Him. Pursue Jesus hard. What does that mean? Well, let me try and illustrate it. Keller got me to thinking about this. And I, 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 a trade secret. I let you, I'm going to let you in on a trade secret. I, I let it in on, with the Thursday night, my leadership group. When I am prepared to preach, I quote from everywhere and everyone. When I am not really prepared to preach, I quote from C.S. Lewis. Why? Because one of the first books I remember reading as a teenager was C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. One of the main books, transformative books I read in college was his biography called Surprised by Joy. And I'll never forget where he talks about as an atheist. He was perfectly happy to be an atheist, except he kept hearing what he called music from another world. Why is there love? Why is there music? Why is there beauty? What does that all mean? Music from another world. It haunted him until Jesus brought him down. I remember reading letters to Malcolm chiefly on prayer and it just radically changed my prayer. I have spent so much time reading C.S. Lewis and I've read some of his books three or four times that I am in a place where I think I know his mind. I can predict what he's going to say. Uh, I think I know the spirit of the author. Because I have pursued Him hard. Can you imagine what would happen in our marriages if we pursued Jesus that hard? Where when we were squeezed in our marriage, Jesus comes out. Because we have spent so much time reading His books. Reading His thoughts. Folks, this is not rocket science. This is not a pill. This is not easy. If you want to improve your marriage, pursue Jesus' heart. How? Read the Bible. Read the Bible. Folks, I just got a new iPhone 5. I know how easy it is now. You can get like these programs, a verse a day, a chapter a day, Bible reading programs. Man, we got no excuse now. Are you getting the input of Jesus into your life on a regular and consistent basis? You want to love your spouse more by loving Jesus most? Read the Bible. Get His input into your life. Pursue Him. Get absorbed in Jesus. So that's the first power source. The second power source, the first one is the Spirit who gives us a servant heart. Be filled with the Spirit. The second is... The covenant. So in the Ephesians 5 text, Paul sets it up with the Holy Spirit, and then he goes into roles which husbands, wives submit to husbands, husbands love wives, get a seat early, Nick's preaching on that next week. I want to pick it up at the end when Paul talks about the idea of covenant. Verses 28-31. through Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And after all, no one hated their own body. But they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of His body. For this reason, here's the covenant language, this quote from Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That's covenant language. Leaving, cleaving, united as one, glued, um, one flesh. It's the result of a covenant now understand in Genesis when Moses wrote that how they ratified covenants two parties would come together the uh, agreement would be read and the parties would agree and then the parties would take a lamb a very valuable possession in the ancient world a live animal a lamb and they'd cut it in half yes blood everywhere and they would place the two halves of the lamb on the ground And then, after the terms of the covenant had been recited, both parties would walk through the bloody halves. The symbol meant, May this happen to me if I break this covenant. Friends, do you think God takes covenants seriously when blood's involved? Do you think that God takes marriage covenants seriously Seriously? I'm convinced that God shows up at every marriage, Christian or not. He ordained the institution in, even if it's in different religions, God's at wedding ceremonies. Those covenants matter to him. It's how he's promoting the world and the civilization. Marriage is serious business. I had a couple ask me last week, they're they're doing a quick wedding, there's a military guy flying in, and he asked me, well, what would we, you know, we'd want to have like a 10 minute ceremony. What do we really need? Bottom line, what makes you married? Military guys, you know. Um, (laughs) My answer, in a word, vows. Vows make you marriage. That's the covenant. Two parties agreeing. God watching and you say your vows. That's what makes a couple married. Everything else is icing. But vows, it's serious vows business and God is watching everybody and you get this sense just from even some throwaway verses in the Old Testament I want to put a verse up here from Proverbs 2 kind of a almost in a throwaway fashion but notice the implication wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman who from the wayward woman with her seductive words who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God how about one that's straight at it in Malachi chapter 2 this is serious business God is talking to Israel, and He says, You ask why? It is because the Lord is witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to Him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. That's why God's so interested in marriage. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence. To the one he should protect, says the Lord God Almighty. This is serious business. A marriage covenant and making these vows. It's always vertical. It's always vertical, even though we live horizontal. So, where does this covenant get its power? Two words, leave and cleave. And let me quickly walk through those. Leave. Leave. A marriage is a new thing. A marriage is not the joining of two words. It's the two worlds. It's the abandonment of two worlds to create a new thing. A marriage. And that marriage becomes the vortex of your life. It's the relationship that demands from you the most attention. And you must always give it the most attention. That's Paul's language in Ephesians 5.28 when he says, the husband should love his wife as his own body. What's he, what's the metaphor there? The metaphor there is if loving your own body, that's your health. What happens in, let's say, another realm? Let's say, what happens if you love your work more than your health? What happens? You lose both. What happens if you love your money more than you love your health? You lose both. What happens if you love anything else more than your marriage? You lose both. We must love our marriage as the vortex of our life. It is the most important relationship. Nothing else should have the priority in our lives, if you're married, than your marriage save chasing Jesus. Nothing else. Look, I've seen this. I've seen, I try to say this at every wedding that I do. If everything around you is weak, but your marriage is strong, you enter the world in strength. If everything around you is strong, but your marriage is weak, you enter the world in weakness. And the difference is the priority that you place on your marriage. That means at times you need to protect it from the things that are closest to it. I think the two main marriage wreckers that I've observed over the years, well, I don't know if I want to say top of the list, but I, these are tough. I've seen children, those little imps, wreck marriages. You've got to protect your marriage from your children. Your marriage is... Can I remind you that when God started the human world, He put a man and a woman, a husband, and a wife in the garden, not a parent and a child. Marriage is the most important relationship in your wife. Now children innocently do everything they can to pull your marriage apart. My friends, having just experienced this with my wife of my youth, we raised our two boys, and wouldn't you know it, you raise them to be adults, and they do it. I hate that. And they leave your home. They leave you. They leave you. Will you have anything left when they leave? Those of you who are married and still have kids at home, that preparation starts now. They will leave you and crush your heart. And you have to have a marriage that's left. And the way you do that is to prioritize your marriage now. If you are leaning and your marriage is hard right now and you're leaning on your children as your main source of emotional support, you're going to lose both. You're going to lose your marriage and you're going to crush your child if you're counting on them to fill your heart up. Be careful. Protect your marriage from your children. The other thing, He says, leave and cleave your father and mother. You need to protect your marriage from your parents. (laughs) Because they love you and they'll want to help you. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. You need to have a break from them financially. You need to break from your parents. It's it's not the joining of two worlds. It's the abandonment of two worlds and the, the, the establishment of a new thing. And you need to, parents, cut the ties. You're, we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks when we talk about parenting and family. We're going to parent up down to our little kids and we're going to parent up to our older parents. But you need to cut ties with your parents in your marriage emotionally. Look, if you're in a marriage and one of, or both of your spouses is still leaning on your parents as the main source of approval, your marriage is going to have trouble. If you're in a marriage and you're leaning on your parents for emotional support to help you in the marriage, your marriage is going to have trouble. Look, conflict resolution is hard enough with two people. How much more with three or four? (laughs) And if your spouse finds out that you've been backdooring you on marriage and telling really secret, hard stuff to your parents, are you going to trust them? There needs to be a break from your parents psychologically. You you need to remember that it's a new thing. Some of you walk into a marriage and think, oh, well, my dad used to do it this way. Or my mom used to do it this way. Uh Uh-uh. Everything in a marriage is negotiated from ground zero. Everything. Don't just assume it's going to be the same as the marriage your parents have. And you're going to have the same roles and responsibilities. You do that, you're going to have trouble. Some of you need to stop bringing the hate that you have for your parents into your marriage. I was talking to a man not long ago, and he said when his child, he was a elementary kid, but when they turn teenagers, he's going to not force them to go to church. I said, why? He said, because my dad forced me to go to church from the time I was 13 years old. I hated it. I said to him, well, you were 13. Of course you would hate church. Now you're whatever you are, 33? You're, you're letting your dad still control your life. You know, it, did you sit down and think and ask the question, what's real here? What would be best for the child, even if he doesn't like it? Have you asked any of those questions, or are you just so hung up that your dad drug you to church when you were a teenager? You need to stop hating your parents and bring that in, bringing that into the marriage. Leave and cleave. Let's talk about cleave. Cleave real quick, is two things. Vows. You have to have vows in a marriage ceremony. That's the non-negotiable. Vows, uh, and I tell young married couples this when we're preparing the wedding. You know, vows are not just for the wedding day because everyone assumes that you like each other on your wedding day. Vows are for moving forward. Vows are a promise of future love. Vows are you anticipating the worst to come and then committing to develop the character to survive it. Vows are what can keep you together. I have to be honest, I'd confess, and Jan would say the same thing. Some days, we've had some spots in our marriage that the only thing that's kept us marriage is our vows. Our vows. Vows can keep you from leaving a marriage too quickly. Vows can hold you together when you're in the valley. You know, in Keller's book, he references a a, a study by Linda Waite. And they've discovered, they've done longitudinal studies on marriage, and they've discovered that in marriages if a couple who's in crisis and thinking about divorce can commit to stay together for five more years and work on their marriage, two-thirds of those couples go from unhappy to happy. Did you hear that? Two-thirds of those couples can go from unhappy to happy if they give it five more years. And where do you get the power for those five more years? Your vows. And then, it's not only the vowels at the beginning, but it's love that keeps it. L- love that keeps it. And here's the most important thing as we get ready to leave and go into an anointing time. If you forget everything else I've said, I-, I want you to remember that the source of power is the Spirit and the covenant. I want you to remember, though, that the power of a covenant is love. And here's what love means. Love is not a feeling. It's an act of your will. Love is not a feeling. It's an act of your will. Love is not a feeling. It's an act of your will. I am sick and tired of meeting with couples and them telling me we're not in love anymore. That is bull-lonny. It's baloney. You're not in like anymore. I get that. I get that romance fades like a henna tattoo. I get that. But don't tell me you're not in love anymore. Why? Because love is not a feeling. It's an act of the will and you are choosing not to love anymore. Thank you for letting me get that off my chest. Let me, I have a C.S. Lewis quote that I want to put up, but we're, we're out of time. Let me just tell you a story and then we'll get to the anointing. <laughs> I believe this, folks. I believed it. I believe it because it's what the Bible teaches, it's true, and I believe that it's been affirmed by experience. That love is not a feeling, it's an act of your will. Feelings follow behavior. You decide to love, and your feelings follow where you, someone once said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Feelings follow love. So one time, you know, being a pastor is a weird deal. I have to tell you. You know why? Cuz you have to be friends with everyone at church. <laughs> the rest of you don't have to do that. Sometimes you have to be friends with people you don't like. A couple well, about 20 years ago, I was 30 years old. We were in the movie theater. We had a church of about 400, and most of the people were in what we called in those days adult Bible communities. They were Sunday school classes, and our elders taught them except for one who was taught by a man I'm going to call Harry. Harry taught this other class. All the other ABCs were flourishing. This one was dying because Harry's idea of teaching was an hour lecture. I kid you not. Wrote it out and read it. And his class went from a starting of 30 down to about five people. All during this next, uh, I don't know, six months I was talking with Harry. Harry, you can't lecture. These classes are designed for discussion and dialogue. And Get another teacher with you. Collaborate. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it, and every Sunday it was an hour lecture, and the class was dying. So finally, 30 years old, I thought I knew, I, you know, I called him up and I said, Harry, I'm letting you go from the class. I was too chicken to do it in person. I called him up. Harry, I'm letting you go. He said, You're firing me? I said, I guess I am. He hung up the phone. I thought it was done. Whew. Shows up the next Sunday. Harry's there teaching. (laughs) So after the class, there in the Cooper 7 Movie Theater, which is Front Range Christian School, one of my vivid moments there, (laughs) we had words. He was 50 years old, I was 30. We had words. At the end of it all, he says to me, Larry, here's what we're going to do we're going to meet for breakfast once a week for the next two months. And we're going to tell each other our stories and get to know each other. And then then he said, "Greatest, one of the greatest leadership lessons I've ever learned. We are going to fake it until we make it. And we did. And I heard his story, and I shared my story and all my fears about what kind of pastor I was going to become. Long story short, Harry actually became quite a good teacher and I performed the wedding ceremonies for all three of his children. We are in touch to this day. I didn't like Harry, but I loved him and love changes everything. It's not a feeling. It's an act of the will. We're going to end this service with some singing, but during the singing is a time of anointing. And here's what this anointing time means. It means that you are going to ask the Holy Spirit, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, to come into your marriage and bring healing and joy and strength. Here's what it really means and why I'm asking you to come forward to do it for your marriage. I want you to picture, because this is how we have to preach to ourselves in our marriages. I want you to picture Jesus on the cross. Jesus is there on the cross. And He's looking down at you. And there, He's looking at you, the ones who have abandoned Him and denied Him and betrayed Him. And what does Jesus say? He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And then what does Jesus do? He stays on the cross. Why? Because we're so attractive and beautiful? No. Because He decides to stay and love us. Because in His sight, we are attractive and beautiful. And He stays. And His love transforms us. And I'm asking you to consider with your spouse coming and getting the sign of the cross on your marriage, the Holy Spirit coming fresh in a new way. And I'm really asking you, married couples, I'm asking you if you're going to stay and love your spouse. You love your spouse. You fulfill your marriage vows with the cross on you. Okay? Come and have your marriage anointed with the fresh wind, fresh fire of the Holy Spirit and with a renewed commitment to choose your beauty and love Him and love her. I also want to open this up to anyone who's not married. If that's the kind of marriage you want, come as a prayer and be anointed for that marriage. So, let's sing. And let's give our marriages to God.